Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Animal Life in Garden and Field. There are lots of creatures that exist in the garden and field. Quite often, we don't even know they're there. This book takes a look behind the scenes of the garden and field. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. I'm truly honoured that you have chosen this podcast to help you fall asleep. Thank you to CastBox listener Omerta for your lovely review. Thank you also to Johnny A., for your lovely message through the website. It's great that the podcast helps you and your wife drift off to sleep. Thank you also to Jamie Lou for your lovely message through the website. I'm glad that you're now able to get a good night's rest. Your reviews and messages mean a great deal to me. For all other listeners out there who find the podcast helpful, Please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. You can find me on Facebook by searching boyyoutosleep podcast. In the meantime, lie back Relax and enjoy the readings. Animal Life in Field and Garden Chapter 1 What Uncle Paul Proposes to Talk About In these talks that we shall have together, said Uncle Paul, as he sat with his nephews one evening in May, under the big elder tree in the garden, I propose to designate as friends those forms of animal life that, though not domesticated or cared for by us, nevertheless come to our aid by waging war on insects and various other devouring creatures which would in the end, unless their excessive multiplication were kept in restraint by others besides ourselves, eat up all our crops and lay waste our fields. And it is these ravages of the farmer's carefully tiled acres and I shall speak of as foes. What can man's efforts avail against those voracious hordes, multiplying as they do every year to an extent beyond calculation? Will he have the patience, the skill, the keenness of vision necessary for waging successful warfare on the tiniest species, 
often the most formidable, when the June bug, despite its far greater size, baffles all his endeavours. Will he undertake to examine his fields and inspect every lump of soil, every spear of wheat, every separate leaf on his fruit trees? For so prodigious a task, the whole human race would be inadequate, even if it united all its efforts to this one end. The devouring hordes would reduce us to starvation, my children, had we not able helpers to work for us, helpers endowed with a patience that nothing can tire, a skill that foils all ruses, a vigilance that nothing escapes, to lie in ambush for the enemy, to track it to its remotest retreats, to hunt it unceasingly, and finally to exterminate it, that is their sole care, their never-ending occupation. Urged on by the pangs of hunger, they are relentless in their pursuit, both for their own sake and on behalf of their progeny. They live on those that live on us. They are the enemies of our enemies. Engaged in this work are the Martins that just as present are circling over our heads, the bats that fly around our house, the owls that call to one another from the hollow willow trunks in the meadow, the warblers that sing in the grove, the frogs that croak in the ditches, and many more besides, including the toad, which is an object of loathing to most people. Thanks be to God who has given us, to serve as guardians of our daily bread, the owl and the toad, the bat and the viper, the frog and the lizard. All these creatures wrongfully cursed and shamefully abused by us, and foolishly looked upon with repugnance and hatred, in reality, lend us valiant assistance, and should take a high place in our esteem. To repair the injustice they have suffered shall be my first duty as we come to each of them in turn. Thanks be to God who, to protect us from the great eater, the insect, has given us the swallow and the warbler the robin redbreast and the nightingale, these the delight of our eye and ear, creatures of infinite grace, must I again raise my voice in their defence. Alas, yes, for their homes are ravaged by the barbarous nest hunter. It is my purpose now to acquaint you, my children, with these various helpers of man in his labours as tiller of the soil. I will tell you about their ways of living, their habits and their aptitudes, and the services they render us. My object will be attained if I succeed in imparting to you a little of the interest they deserve. 
I will begin with those that have teeth. But first, let us take a glance at the shape and structure of teeth in general, for it is this that determines the kind of food required by the animal. It is not true, resumed Uncle Paul, that each kind of work demands its own special tool. The ploughman must have the plough, the blacksmith, the anvil, the mason, the trowel, the weaver, the shuttle, the carpenter, the plane, and these different tools, all excellent for the work to which they are applied, would be of no use in any other. Could the mason rough cast his wall with a shuttle? Could the weaver weave his cloth with a trowel? Evidently not. Is it not true then, that from the tool one may easily guess the kind of work it does? Nothing could be easier, it seems to me, replied Jules. If I see planes and saws hanging on the wall, I know that I am in a carpenter's shop. And I should know, said Emile, from seeing an anvil, a hammer, and a pair of tongs, that I was in a blacksmith's shop. But if I saw a mortar board and a trowel, I should look around for the mason. Well, Uncle Paul went on. Every creature has its special task in creation's great workshop, where all take part, all work, according to the design of divine wisdom. Each species has its mission. I might say it's a trade to follow, a trade that requires special tools, just as does any work done by man. Now, among the innumerable trades of animals, there is one that is common to all without exception, the most important trade of all, as without it life itself would be impossible. It is the business of eating. But all animals do not take the same kind of food. Some need prey, raw flesh, others fodder, some eat roots, others seeds and fruit. In every instance, teeth are the tools used in the work of eating, so they must have the shape appropriate to the kind of food eaten. Whether that be tough or tender, hard or easy to chew, therefore, just as from his tool the artisan's work may be inferred, so from the shape of its teeth, one can usually tell the kind of food eaten by an animal. Which of you can tell me what bats feed upon? asked Uncle Paul the next day. At this question, Emil put on his thinking cap, closing his eyes and rubbing his forehead, but no ideas came. Nor were Jules and Lewis any prompter with an answer. Nobody knows. Well then, so much the better, for you will have the satisfaction of finding it out for yourselves, from the shape of the teeth. Their wings are a different feature of the bat.
wings, real wings, perfectly adapted to flying, are the bat's most striking feature. How can a mammal, an animal whose general structure is that of a dog or a cat, for example, possess the flying apparatus of a bird? How can two organs so entirely different be combined? In the bat's wing, my children, we find an admirable example of the infinite resources at the command of the Creator, who without adding to or subtracting from the fundamental plan, has adapted the same organs to the most widely different functions. The four feet of mammals, of the dog or the cat we will say, are changed into wings in the bat without the addition or the loss of a single part in this incredible transformation. More than that, the human arms, our arms, children, are there represented piece by piece, bone by bone. You all look at me as if you did not believe it unable to understand how there can be anything in common between our arms and a bat's wings. From the shoulder to the elbow, the framework of the human arm consists of a bone known as the humerus. From the elbow to the wrist, there are two bones of unequal size running side by side the whole length. The larger is the cubitus, the smaller the radius. Then comes the wrist, composed of several little bones, which I will not now describe. Next is the palm of the hand, its framework formed of a row of five bones, almost alike, and each serving to support a finger. Finally, each finger contains a succession of small bones, of which the thumb has two, and all the other three each. I will add that two bones serve to attach the arm to the body. One is the shoulder blade, a broad triangular bone situated on the back behind the shoulder. The other is the collarbone, slender and curved, situated in front and extending from the shoulder to the base of the neck. Those are the collarbones that you can feel with your hand at the right and left above the breast. Bats are nocturnal, Uncle Paul continued the next day. That is, they leave their lurking places only at nightfall to hunt in the evening twilight. As a rule, animals addicted to nocturnal hunting have very large eyes that take in as much light as possible, and thus these animals can see with very little light. Night birds such as owls of all kinds will furnish us a remarkable example a little later. By a singular exception, however, Despite their nocturnal habits, bats have very small eyes. How then are they able to direct themselves in their swift flight, so abrupt in its changes of direction? 
How, above all, are they aware of the presence of their tiny game, moths and gnats? They are guided especially by their senses of smell and hearing, which are extraordinarily acute. What do you say to the bat's ears? What animal of its size can you show anything like them? How they flare, like enormous hearing trumpets to receive the slightest sound. The bat that bears them has the expressive name of long-eared bat. Other bats which have smaller ears have a substitute, a sense of smell unequaled for its acuteness. The high state of perfection of this sense is the result of the abnormal development of the nose, which covers a good part of the face and gives the animal a very strange appearance. For example, here is the head of a bat called the horseshoe bat. This broad, distended formation of curious shape that occupies almost the whole space between the eyes and the mouth is the nose. It ends above in a large triangular, leaf-like expanse. Laterally, it spreads out in the unfolded laminae, altogether taking the shape of a horseshoe, whence the name of the creature. What smell, however faint, could escape such a nose? The dog, so famous for its keenness of scent, chases the hare without seeing it, guided solely by the odour left behind the animal, heated in the chase. But how much keener the scent of the horseshoe bat must be when it chases in the same manner a moth that leaves no odour for any nose but its pursuers. I sometimes wonder whether such a nose, so abnormally developed, may not be able to detect certain qualities that are and always will be unknown to us, for want of the means to perceive them. The horseshoe bat's grotesque nose makes you laugh, my little friends. It makes me think. I think of the thousand secrets that nature hides from our senses, and that would be as easy for us to learn as they would be valuable if we possessed the scent of a poor bat. Perhaps the horseshoe bat foresees with its nose the coming storm several days in advance. It may sense the future hurricane, smell the rain clouds coming from the other end of the earth, know by detecting their odour what winds are about to blow, foretell in similar manner what the weather is going to be, and guided by perceptions of which we can form no idea, it may make its plans for hunting insects that are sometimes abundant, and sometimes scarce according to the state of the atmosphere. But it is high time we finished with the bats. Their history would be too long if I were to tell you all about them. I will only ask Jules what he thinks now of the animal he at first called hideous. Frankly, uncle, answered the boy, 
These creatures interest me now more than they disgust me. Their singular wings, formed at the cost of what might have been hands, their prodigious nose and immense ears, which make up for their poor eyesight, their cheeks, their flight, it's all very interesting to me. In his walled garden, Uncle Paul allowed a couple of hedgehogs, which he had brought from the neighbouring hills to wander at large. One evening the children noticed them poking about in a lettuce patch. Why, asked Emil, has Uncle Paul put those animals in the garden and told us to leave them alone if we happened to come across them? No doubt to make war on harmful insects, answered Lewis. Stop, look there. One of them is turning up the earth with its little black snout. Let's keep still and see what it's after. The children crouched down behind a row of peas so as not to be seen. The hedgehog, now scratching with its paws, now rummaging with the tip of its snout, which resembles that of a pig, finally unearthed a big fat white lava, which had probably been clinging to the root of a lettuce plant. The children ran to look at the captured game. The hedgehog, thus taken by surprise, hastened to roll itself up into a bowl bristling with spines. In the disinterred worm, Jules easily recognised a junebug larva, one of that ravenous and destructive race that Uncle Paul had already told them about. In the evening, when they were all gathered around together, the hedgehog naturally became the subject of conversation. Several years ago, said Uncle Paul, as I was returning home one evening at a late hour, I chanced upon two hedgehogs coming out of a pile of stones. I tied them up in my handkerchief so as to bring them home and let them loose in my garden. Ever since then, they have never failed to render me certain services that you can appreciate by examining their jaws. Pointed teeth like those, Jules remarked, were never made for browsing grass. The hedgehog must feed on prey. Its teeth are just right for crunching junebug worms, such as the one I saw dug up in the garden this morning. Notice how sharp the points of teeth are, resumed his uncle, both in the upper and in the lower jaw. Those two rows of teeth fit into each other when the animal bites, and as they plunge like so many fine daggers into the junebug. With this complicated dental mechanism, evidently the hedgehog cannot triturate tough food. It must have a kind of diet that is soft, juicy, and capable of being reduced to marmalade by brief chewing. Several other species, particularly the mole and the shrew mouse of these regions, have, like the hedgehog, teeth tapering to conical points and interplaying into the two jaws. Their food, too, is about the same as a hedgehog's. 
All three, hedgehog, mole, and shrewmouse, live on small game, insects, larvae, slugs, caterpillars, and worms. They belong to the group of mammals known to naturalists as the order of insectivorous animals, or in other words, the order of insect eaters. On and under the ground, they carry on the same kind of hunt that bats do in the air. In their way of living, bats, too, are insectivorous, but their peculiar body structure causes them to be placed apart in the order of chiropters. Thus, the mammals furnish us two orders of helpers, the chiropters, which hunt on the wing, and the insect eaters, the insectivorous animals properly so called, which hunt on and under the ground. To the latter belong the hedgehog and the mole, and the shrew mouse. The hedgehog, the largest of the three, requires the largest and most plentiful prey. Tiny vermin are disdained, but a June bug larvae, or a good fat mole cricket, is an excellent find. When they are not buried too deep, he digs with his paws and snout to unearth them. You have today seen my hedgehogs at work in the lettuce bed. All night they go prowling about the garden, sniffing and rummaging in every nook and corner, and crunching no small number of my foes without doing me much harm. In them I have two vigilant watchmen, who make their rounds every night for the greater security of my growing vegetables. However, despite the interest I take in them, I must, to be candid, acknowledge their faults. The hedgehog's natural food consists unquestionably of insects, but when a good opportunity presents itself, the greedy creature is easily tempted by a larger and more highly flavoured prey. Sometimes they might go for young rabbits caught in their hole during their mother's absence. The eggs of quail and partridge too, it esteems as a most delicious feast. Ah, uh, that I am quite willing to believe. By day the animal crouches in a corner and sleeps but at night it is on the move, always hunting for slugs, fat beetles and other insects. Consequently, it may well be that its noisy hunt for prey as it goes poking its pointed snout into every hole and cranny frightens the rats and mouse and drives them away, especially as the nocturnal prowler exhales a disagreeable odour calculated to betray its presence. Having neither the cat's light paw nor the animal's great patience in lying in wait for game, the hedgehog does not indulge in hunting rats. But if by good luck one falls into its clutches, it is accepted with delight, for the hedgehog can make a great feast. Our bats, continued Uncle Paul, live exclusively on insects, and these constitute the hedgehog's chief food, 
but it also hunts larger game or even fruits. In winter, there are no longer any plump insects to be had, most of them having died after laying their eggs, and the few surviving ones having taken refuge from the cold in hiding places, where they would be very hard to find. The larvae too, the hope of future generations, are lying torpid far out of sight under the ground in the trunks of old trees, snugly hidden away. The white worm has bored several feet into the ground to escape the frost. There are no more June bugs for the long-eared owl, no more night-flying moths, and no more beetles for the hedgehog. What then is to become of these insect eaters? They would die of hunger, answered Jules. They would indeed all die, were it not for the providential arrangement I am now going to try and make you understand. You know the proverb, he who sleeps dines, a very true proverb in its simple statement of an undeniable fact. Well, the hedgehog, the bat, and other animals put the principle into practice with a wisdom quite equal to that of man. Not being able to dine for want of insects, they go to sleep. And so deep and heavy is their sleep that to designate it we use a special word, lethargy. Another proverb says, as you make your bed, so you must lie. Our dumb animals, never lacking in wisdom, in ordering their own affairs, take good care not to forget this proverb, but to adopt wise precautions before abandoning themselves to their long winter sleep. The hedgehog chooses for itself a secure retreat amid the great roots of some old tree stump. Toward the end of the autumn, it carries grass and dry leaves to deposit there, and arranges them in a hollow ball, in the middle of which it rolls itself up and goes to sleep. Bats assemble in great numbers in the warm depths of some cavern, where none can disturb their slumbers. Heads down and bodies packed close together, they hug the walls, covering them with a sort of velvet tapestry, or clinging to one another. They hang in bunches from the roof. Now the winter may do its worst and the winds may rage. The hedgehog in its warm blanket of leaves, and the bats in their sheltered caves sleep a deep sleep. Until summer returns, and with it insects, food, animation, and life. But don't they eat anything all winter long, asked Emile, incredulously. Nothing whatever, his uncle assured him. Then bats and hedgehogs must have a secret. For my part, I eat more in the winter than at any other time and no amount of sleep would satisfy my hunger. Yes, the bat and the hedgehog have a secret in this matter. I am going to tell you this secret, 
but it is a little hard to understand, I assure you. There is one need before which hunger and thirst are silent, however great they may be, a need that is never satisfied and is always making itself felt, whether we wake or sleep by night, by day, every hour, every minute. It is the need of air. Air is so essential to the maintenance of life that it has not been left to us to regulate its use as we do in regard to food and drink. And this is so in order that we may not be exposed to the fatal consequences that would follow the slightest forgetfulness. Therefore, it is with little or no consciousness on our part and independently of our will that air gains entrance into our body to do its marvellous work there. On air, more than on anything else do we live, our daily bread coming only second in the order of importance. Our need of food is felt at only tolerably long intervals. Our need of air is felt unceasingly, always imperious, always inexorable. Let anyone try for a moment to prevent his admission into the body by closing the entrance passages, the mouth and the nostrils almost immediately. He is suffocated and feels that he would surely die if this state were prolonged a little. And what is true of man is true of all forms of animal life. Air is necessary to them all from the greatest to the smallest. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story about animals and their lives. I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.